are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I'm the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am here with Dr. Michael Dando. He is an assistant professor of communication arts and literature at St. Cloud State University in Minnesota. He is an award-winning author, artist, educator, and scholar with two decades of classroom experience. His research and writing explore ways teachers and schools collaborate with communities to build collective, civically engaged, democratic opportunities and systems for social justice education. And I've seen some of those with his hip-hop scholars and things like that. Particularly, his research examines ways youth employ various cultural forms, including hip-hop and comics, to construct social, cultural, and political identities and literacies that generate educational opportunities for sustained, critical, democratic engagement for social justice. Well, that so sounds think, like that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're the one who sent it to me, so I'm yeah. assuming that is you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. Of course. Of course. Thank you for uh, thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. And again, I don't remember, as with a lot of people, I don't remember when we connected, but I think we connected over comics and hip hop and things like that. We, and then we connected, we connected very organically, um, which is, which is the way, as, as one of the things I love about the, Twitter, you know, the work that you do. <laughs> yeah, the work that you do, the work that I do, um, you know, there, it, it's, it's, we have shared, we have shared interests, we have shared, you know, ideas, and that's what, that's really what it's supposed to be about, so um, I don't know. There wasn't a. Oh, I met at a conference at this and this paper and yeah. this that. It's. I think it was uh, over Twitter and over comics and, um, and then a friend of a friend, um, and it just kind of grew from there. So I'm really that, happy to be here. And that's what I think these spaces like. This isn't the discussion, but we were talking about this before we started recording. That's what spaces like Twitter. I think were very, mm-hmm. you know, powerful for mm-hmm. compared to something like Facebook because Twitter is where I connected with people like you with other scholars that had similar interests that were doing similar work. And then that kind of network, you know, expanded out from there. So I think that those are very organic and powerful spaces. And it kind of reminds me too of Lillian Smith and kind of her connections that she kind of cultivated throughout her life. And the way she did that, of course, was this won't be the focus of the discussion, but thinking about this, the way she kind of cultivated those spaces is with the journal that her and Paula, you know, published Mm -hmm. for like 10 years or a decade. The people that they got to write into that, the people they published in that in that um, magazine, and then actually the events that they held at the camp. So she was forming right. her own network in a similar way before these technological advancements with social media that we have. So I think that that's yep. really kind of an important thing because remember she was friends with Polly Murray, friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, Mary McLeod mm-hmm. Bethune. Mm-hmm. The list goes on and on and on, and it was through these kind of networks and connections. Yeah, and that's that's really like. Uh kind of a when you're thinking about solidarity um and and you know collaboration and trying to you know as as Lillian did during during her life and she was hardly the first one but but to build to build something lasting it it needs to be organic and so that's one of the things I've kind of always um admired right you mentioned build something lasting too. And I'm even thinking when you're talking, I'm like, she built these organically, but that lasting is still there too. Cause I've talked to so many people who 
her, their parents knew her or they knew her and then they continue that legacy on. That's right. So it's That's not right. just a it, it's Kenneth Burke's parlor metaphor that I always tell students is there's yeah. a conversation going on. You enter the room, somebody leaves, you join the conversation. It's the same conversation right. you're adding to same it. Conversation. You leave, somebody else comes in, that That's conversation right. is still going on. That's right. So I kind That's of right. view it in that thing that it's not just these things that pop up. And before we got started recording, you know, you actually kind of mentioned that. So I guess I guess that's where we need to start, because you mentioned actually a book that I found, you know, at the camp and it's Buckland mm -hmm. Moons. It's an anthology. It's called Primer for White Folks. It was published uh -huh. in 1945 and it's an anthology okay. of writings by um, white and black authors from slavery to today. Um, and they talk about and this is from the front. I can't read the whole thing, so I apologize Today's struggle for a share in American democracy is kind of the the tagline there, right? And in this right. in this collection, you have Chester Himes. This this is during the war or right when the war right. is about to end. And Chester Himes has a piece called "Democracy is for the Unafraid." And Lillian Smith has a piece called "Addressed to White Liberals" in this book, right? And right. And in this selection, I'm just going to read kind of something I wrote about it. We can kind of start off from there. Yeah, that'd be great. So throughout her work, um or throughout Address for like Liberals, she points out that we don't need to refer to the problem as the race problem or the Negro problem, or as, you know, the boys did the color line. Instead, we need to do a, this is what she, this is her quote, write about face and study the problem of the white man, the deep-rooted needs that have caused him to seek those strange regressive satisfactions that are derived from worshiping his own skin color, end quote. And that's what she talks about in Killers and everything like that. Yep. Um, we need to look at our own reflection in the mirror and the problems that arose and continue to arise from that reflection because, as Smith puts it, quote, the white man himself is one of the world's most urgent problems today. Mm -hmm. And whites need to recognize this and must learn to confess this, right? And then mm -hmm. that confession, though, requires self-reflection and work. So that's right. St stepping off from there, I guess, before we kind of get to that, can you kind of tell me how you kind of came across Lillian Smith and kind of her impact on you? Because this kind of thing sure. plays into that a little yeah, bit. <laughs> for sure. Um, and uh, I had to, we, we were talking earlier and I had to kind of get my, get my brain going. It's, uh, um, you know, get things, get things going. But the focus of my, my research, my study, my teaching um, is really all about democratic small D education, right? Um, that idea of that, that democracy is for the unafraid, right? And if we could say anything about Lillian Smith, for example, she was unafraid, <laughs> right? Um, she had uh, a number of, um, a, you know, she had she had a number of uh, pieces that really were striking to me. Um, as and as I was looking at, you know, I was reading, looking at the era, right? Uh, looking at the history of. Um, I'm an education researcher. So looking at the history of education in the United States, who, who uh, is afforded that, um, you know, those opportunities, how are they, um, how have they been um, sort of historically uh, foreclosed, we'll say, to, to people um, who are well deserving of it and the conversations around that. Um, you know, I would run into, for instance, like uh, like George Counts um, in in the 30s, right, or Horace Mann, um, 
a number of a number of folks. And then as I was looking at the schools as a democratic institution, right? Um, that's really where I, I ended up running into um, her work. Um, this idea of what does it mean to what does it mean to to think about democracy? What does um, how does that intersect? Right, notions of race and gender and class. Um, how how do those intersect with the the project of education in the United States? If they, if that makes sense. So while she didn't write directly necessarily about um, uh, curriculum and instruction, although it is related, um, she was writing about things that are very sort of near and dear to my heart. How do people think about um, and advocate for in their era, in their time? Um, how, how do they how do they advocate for social justice issues of um, equity? Um, I often tell my students, um, don't don't ask what you would do in the civil rights era because you're in it, right? Drawing from that same metaphor, the conversation is ongoing. Yeah, we um, have the we have does the that, does temporal, that make, right? Does it... Yeah, we have the temporal thing of civil rights movements '54 with Brown v. Board and '68 with the assassination of King and Robert F. Kennedy. That's right? right. And that's not the case. Right. I mean, no. Lillian's doing this in the forties. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to teach Polly Murray's um, song in a yeah. throat. Her and Ruth Powell oh, and students wonderful. at Howard are doing sit-ins in DC in 42, 43. And she's writing to Lillian about it. Right. And there, of course, and during a trip to Virginia, she's arrested with the woman mm -hmm. she's traveling with mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they move up and the white bus driver, you know, get, so these movements aren't new and you can even go back further too. Yeah. And then you can move forward too. Right. So, sure. but that thing you said too, I think about education being, I don't remember the exact wording you say, but I always kind of ask my students, ask, I need to ask them this semester. I haven't done it yet, but I asked students last semester, I was like, what is the role of education? Right. Sure. You know, why are you here to get an education? Right. And most of them were kind of perplexed and dumbfounded. Like, you know, what, <laughs> What what do you mean, right? Right. Because we have this idea that education is just meant to get us a degree and to get us a job. And they didn't even right. say that, which was kind of interesting. But my kind of view of education is kind of what you were saying. And this is where I want to get back to Lillian, too, is that sure, please. it is a means to cultivate, not the right word, but it is a means to um, inform and educate individuals yes to become active, engaged citizens within the democratic process that we have, right? Exactly. So within the community and whatever form that entails. And I think that Lillian was very much, you said that she doesn't write about pedagogy much and she doesn't, but I think she does at some points and she's very much attuned to that with her role as the camp director. I think that her role as the right. camp director from 1925 through the closing in 48 from Laurel Falls Camp for Girls She's very much in line with kind of this, you know, what do I do to educate these girls to make them constructive, engaged citizens in their right. communities, right? And then there's that there's right. that girl in Killers of the Dream that pushes back on her. It's like, you're teaching us things that we can't do. So mm -hmm. it's where do these things kind of butt up against each other, too? Mm -hmm. And she continues that because remember with the Brown v. Board decision, which ended school, you know, segregation or mm -hmm. at least legally ostensibly yeah right um she's she calls it every child's magna carta because she she extends that not just to 
race, but she is, she extends it to physical ability, right? And to mental mm -hmm. ability. So she's extending it further than, than just the race aspect of that case. And I think that that's right. very important. And, you know, that, that kind of leads me to one of my favorite quotes from her. And this is actually, there was a teacher, Mr. Hartley, who's an English teacher. And if you, if you type in Mr. Hartley and I forget his, his, his full name, but if you type it in and responses to him, he's an English, he's a high school English teacher. He wrote to multiple people, um, Dr. Seuss, like all these authors to get them to respond to him with advice for his students. And Lillian kind of, Dr. Seuss's response is like a page. Lillian's response yeah. is like typed out in here, one, two, you know, four or five pages. <laughs> one thing she says that always kind of stands out to me is that, you know, you don't learn anything in high school. Yeah. Which which I think is, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something I kind of keep stressing too. I'm like, high school is important. Yes. But, you know, mm -hmm. what you learn is actually, you know, I think outside of the classroom. Uh, but anyways, but the, you know, one of the famous, one of the, my favorite quotes from her is at the end on page, well, 15 in the reader, but that's not the page. But this is what she sure. says when she, when she ends it. I think this is one of the most powerful kind of, you know, things. I don't know when learning stops, but I know a writer never stops learning, not ever, until she is dead as a creative being. That's right. When you stop learning, stop listening, stop looking and asking questions, always new questions. Then it is time to die, time to crawl into that small room and pull the cover over you. And you and me are in academia, so we continually <laughs> and constantly read and study and do things like that. Yep. But she wasn't in academia. She was an she was right. artist right. activist. So can you kind of right. talk about what maybe the importance of yeah. education not ending in high school or college? Oh, buddy. Strap in. Here we go. Um, so, you know, I've been I've been thinking a lot and and one of the things i i love is the ongoing the, the legacy of this work so when when so you and me were both kind of history nerds too um you know when i think about who did john brown or who did wb du bois write about right like he wrote this biography of john brown um and he's talking about the legacy of like what what does it mean to be a, like kind of a person of your time right and a lot of times we use a person of your time a person of their time to let people off the hook well, no, no, no. Lillian Smith was also a person of her time. W.E.B. Du Bois was a person of his time. John Brown was a person of his time. There have always been people who have been in these spaces advocating for um, liberation, freedom, equity, equality, however you want to frame it. The thing I, I thought was interesting and, and how I kind of, again, came to her work was thinking about – like James Baldwin talks about this too – is like the role of the artist in – the public square like what uh, the role of the artist is to disturb well and that, that, teachers are right and, and that gets to the question Sorry. too of because this is always the debate and i actually had this discussion with our class this semester is you know lillian says that art is is activism but she's still frustrated yep. about being pigeonholed as a race writer right right art, exactly art, art, art is for her i think an internal exploration of herself and those things That's come right. out of it and it gets back right. to i like that baldwin quote it gets back to kind of the harlem renaissance thing that, that dichotomy which we right. have set up is it is it art for art sake or is it propaganda right right and and, uh, and propaganda is a really strong word but right all art has some kind of social impact and that's and and, and du bois talk, and propaganda it's this is so interesting now i'm getting now i'm getting going so you have to f feel free to stop me or redirect me but but that's it, du, du bois says 
all art is propaganda and he taught and, and not how it's been sort of contemporarily understood, but it's all got a purpose. It's all got a meaning. Well, well, he talks uh, about, right? I mean, what is, is the propaganda of history at the end of black reconstruction? Yep. yep. So it's not just art. It's any it's kind of art. endeavor that you any, do. And right. In, right. And, and one of the and things so, I kind of mentioned too, is everything you do is political, no matter what you're doing. There isn't, you can't separate it, it, them. It isn't it isn't it, it is never apolitical. It always is political. One of the things uh, um, in um, in address to white liberals um, and I'll, one of my favorite quotes, uh, we are facing a serious racial crisis in American life today, a crisis that cannot be met with the old way or with old answers if we are to avoid tragedy. Right. So it's just um, and I spend a lot of my time in comics and hip hop in um when I talk about speculative education, um, and it doesn't mean um, it just pretend, right? Um, it means thinking about the, the the sort of, when I say ideological, what I mean is those things that you're committed to socially, um, personally, ethically, right? Does that make sense? So um when george counts i think it's in 36 it talks about there you know there the school imagine um a new and it's it's a very it's been co-opted but dare the schools dare the school uh, imagine a new social order right what is our what is our role and and one of the things that smith does really really well is she thinks about that broadly right we have intellectual and interpersonal right we've got these um, yes, we need to learn to to read and write. Like when she sets up the camp, right? When she's got this this camp for girls, like yes, we need to we need these things. Literacy is important, but it's what we do with that as humans. How do we engage the world around us through not just as you said, like not just being a particular quote unquote type of writer, but a full a, a fully fledged human person that that recognizes the humanity in others in a in a time and an era especially you could say this really about any era but um where it was like codified uh that you know lack of humanity was codified in in the nation as a whole right and so she's up against um these she she she, she knows exactly where she needs to disturb to borrow from baldwin um but then thinking about all right, we have to do something new because what we've been doing cannot, will not work. And in fact, she uses, you know, the phrase tragedy. And that's where I was looking at, you know, if you think about, well, how did we get here when you, <laughs> to our current moment, which uh, is, we'll say, polarized, uh, to put it lightly. Um, how, well, how did we get to this place? Well, we've always been in this place. We just have broadband right it's always been people's recognition of humanity butting up against this um in these institutions that seek to dehumanize and then what what she did so brilliantly was um to think about it deeply and broadly um and to understand that it was a collective effort rather than just like good person does thing thing right right this this one what is it one great one man one one man one action great man great right yeah like oh gave a speech over we, we fixed well it. The, so the so the thing is there's a couple of things you said one is you know she talks about or works with what it means to become a fully fledged human person i think that's what she's doing right. throughout all of her work right you know like i said right. she didn't want to be pigeonholed as a race writer but 
like I said, the reason that that comes out is because of her environment. And she talks about that in the preface to the 1961 edition of Colors of the Dream. And she's like, I had to go into myself and find out what made me who I was, right? I had to look at my hometown, my um, childhood, all of this stuff, you know, and not just that, but what came before me. And I think that her kind of exploration of that in the journey, which doesn't even really deal with race, her exploration right. of that and things like one hour, you know, all kind of work into to this thing where you mentioned that broadband and this explosion of, you know, information. <laughs> But it reminds me, too, of one of the things she talks about, too, is these constructions of myth and these false realities. And she says, right. it is hard. I forget the exact quote, but it's one I gave my students from Killers, where she basically says, you know, the myths have overtaken the reality. We don't know what the, what the fact is. You know, the, the, the fact is there, but it becomes kind of pushed aside because mm -hmm. the myth has become so strong. So the fact becomes irrelevant. So it's 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 like the discussion of, mm. of it's like the discussion of race, kind of, because right. we know that race is a bi is not a biological thing. I mean, we know that genetics, right. you know, in fact, you know, skin color and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. race mm -hmm. is not biological um, within the mm -hmm. context of you know, well, if you have a relationship with somebody who is a different ethnicity or race, and I put that in quotes, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not going to change anything, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean. Genes are—I can't explain everything. But you, know, but you know what I'm saying. So, it, yeah. it's, but we we know that we know that race is a social construct. So right. let's just say it that way. So, so we know that that's the case. Yet we still have to use that word. I find that really kind of interesting too. Is that we still yeah. have to use that word? And I think um, Kendi talks about this. He's like, yeah, I know it's a social construct, but I still have to use that word because it is so ingrained. Yeah, yeah. That and, that is kind of part... a myth, I guess. That is so ingrained. And I've tried to start using ethnicity. Yeah, and, and it's but it still becomes you know, problematic. When she's talking about um, new, you know, new ways of of thinking and knowing and being, those are epistemological and, in some ways, even ontological structures, right? Be, to to get real into the weeds here for a second, right? This idea of how is reality constructed and how do we know? How do we know things, right? And she, uh, one of the things that that she, again that she I think has done and did and and the gift that she's um, sort of left is the capacity to to dream and to storytell um and to be able to think about think about that myth um think about that story that legend right think about the the things that we tell ourselves that become so deeply ingrained they they become even just the 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 ways we we organize the world, right? As you said, like race, it's the, um, I had a, a professor who's, uh, Michael Apple, who, who said, you know, race is a, so race is a social construct, but its effects are very real. Right. Um, and so in order to organize, right. With core, with SNCC, with, um, you know, to collaborate, to be, um, to be on, on side to use a soccer term um or football term wherever you're listening to this um you have to be able to imagine something different than what is that's sort of these civil rights movement however you're you're thinking about it um is to be creatively resistant to write to think to dream and then to build that alongside other people um you know, she's, she's, what does she say? Uh, 
the right <laughs> the right way is not a moderate way is that what right yeah, like so, this idea of right like yeah and that and that speech of course comes from the, the first anniversary martin luther king and others asked her right. to you know participate in the one-year anniversary right. of the montgomery bus boycotts and that's where she gives that speech and right she wasn't there somebody had to read it for her but she had a white reporter call her and be like, do you really think that whites are losing their freedoms? Because that's what she put in there. And mm -hmm. she was like, well, what part of the speech, you know, are you asking about? And then he read it and then he kind of understood. But the other right. thing you were kind of talking about there, too, I think, is is this hopefulness, this yes. kind of she is very yes. hopeful. You know, it, it, right. it's amidst all of this. And King is very hopeful. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like mm -hmm. that kind of phrasing, but but I want to go back too to this myth making because one of the books that I'm going to yeah. teach, and we're actually going to do this for the LES virtual, the, the Lillian Smith Center virtual book club on April 23rd, if you're available. Yeah, you do it. Um, but we're going to do Ann Moody's Coming of Age in Mississippi. I'm teaching it this oh, semester. Great. I thought I would do it. And this is a book that has been on my shelf forever. It is It has been there and sat there and I never touched it. And then this semester, I was like, well, I'm going to do civil rights memoir, women's civil rights memoir. So I'm doing killers, excerpts from Polly from Song in a Weary right. Throat, excerpts from Coming of Age in Mississippi, and I'm going to end with Angela Davis. So oh, kind of, not. I won't say shattering, but kind of expanding this kind of, you know, yeah. chronological idea we have of the civil rights right. movement. But I was looking and working on the, the flyer today, and I came across um, Adelaide Norris's piece in, um, in Black Perspectives, which is an online, you know, blog and or online um, publication from the uh, African-American Intellectual Historical Society from AAIHS. Which is, which is amazing. I love and, that. I love that their shop, man. They're amazing. And and this is what she said. And this is what I put on top of the flyer because I think it really sums up what Richard's talking about with this myth making. And you, and you kind of referenced a minute ago King, and basically being like, "Yeah, gave this one speech, things are over, right?" And that was sixty three. Yeah. In sixty nine, um, well, yeah. he was murdered in sixty eight, but in his posthumous essay, A Testament of Hope, he basically says, and this is again a paraphrase, is that you know. Whites congratulate themselves on the past of the Civil Rights Act, but things haven't changed, right? And this is four years right. after that. And he's right. like, it's because they don't know any black people, basically, or don't know the experiences. But this is what um, Nora says, and this really stood out to me. Um, the whitewashing of the civil rights movement reflects the asymmetry in the way the movement is portrayed, which overemphasizes the nonviolent aspects while the extreme Precisely. violence conveniently gets filed away in national amnesia. And coming of age in Mississippi is very violent and very um That's it. she lives in Mississippi. She's working in Mississippi during the the freedom votes and the freedom and the freedom and all that stuff. So it is a very violent mm -hmm. book with what, you know. The, the white supremacist right. violence that was attacking individuals. That's right. And that's um there's there's a couple of things there that that I I, I want to touch on. Um we have some of my favorite writers, um, for instance, Octavia Butler, just as an example. Um, just stick with me here, folks, for a second. Um, she wrote a, a book um, called Parable of the Sower, um, which is sort of this dystopian future. And, and these things have really started to, unfortunately, come to pass in some ways. She wrote about like fires and, and environmental disasters in California, for example. And they said, what are... You know, she was a and she was a student of Chip Delaney. Uh, and this Sam was Delaney, the 80s, who, right? Is that what this I was, was in the, this, this was in right. This was in the 80s. Thank you. Um, 
and they said, how do you, you know, are you a, like, are you a prophet? And she goes, no, I'm not a prophet. I can add one and one and get two. So we see, we kind of hear some of these same things of Lillian Smith talking about, we need to do things a new way or we are headed towards tragedy. But that doesn't mean we are hopeless in our pursuit of that because that that's just kind of what drives this idea is we can we can dream a better a better future we can live a better future and we have to be in charge of telling those stories because you know what is she, what she's talking about um when it, when when those myths get internalized truth no longer <laughs> matters and right. I, I, I'm not, a, I won't push. I won't I push mean, too a, much. It, but it, it, it's the whole discussion that she talks about is my parents taught me to love Jesus yet that I'm better than a black person. Right. It's 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 those things that she's talking about with the church, but it's just about the lost cause narrative and all of this yep. other stuff too. And that's yep. why that girl comes to where it's like, yeah, you're teaching us things we can't do. I'm just going to tell my kids to do things as normal. And Lillian's response that I always love is, so you just want to, you're just going to raise them to be little Nazis. I'm like, yep. yeah. And, and, and that's 49. So it's right after the that's, war. Is that's what I that love analogy. about, that's what I love about her is we have this notion that like hopefulness equals like sunshine and clouds and flowers and, 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 and hopefulness requires courage. It requires you to say like, oh, so you're just going to raise, you're just going to raise little, little Nazis. You're going to, um, I, I, I think I recommended like uh, one of the things I know we've shared is, um, you know, I'll read about sort of the rise of authoritarianism and 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 the challenges to democracy kind of globally. Um, and Robert Paxson does a, a great job. The the a taxonomy of fascism. Right. And, and, uh, which and, is a dense read, which well, is a well, dense read. I'm going to say <laughs> Robert Paxson's book is where I started. It was published in 2005 or 2006. Mm -hmm. It is a very dense read about the rise of fascism and it's real good in, in Spain. I think I think he does Spain. I think he does Franco, but yep. but he does Mussolini and Hitler. Yep. And and, it, and it's very I think powerful kind of historical perspective of this rise. And then of course right. books like um Ruth, what's her name, who wrote Strongman. I just finished that one. You know Timothy Snyder's on tyranny yep. and things like that. On so, tyranny. So yep. so th there's a lot of books I think that are are very kind of pressing and they give me that story right. and, and it also gives you i think too you know lillian's a pacifist but it also gives you a good insight into that period where she is coming i won't say coming of age but coming into kind of her own intellectually and artistically because she is really right. my view is she's thinking about things before but she's really coming into her own in 36 which is where they start publishing yep. the journal yep which is three years before hitler invades you know um Poland, Poland yeah. and this is after or right before I think or maybe right after Mussolini invades Ethiopia and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And and I want to touch on that because we have this notion and this is one of the things that I love is we haven't we we have this myth this grand narrative Ron, uh, Ronald Takaki if you haven't read um a different mirror great book um talks about the grand the grand narrative right he talks about this idea of uh, and part of that is like well that the civil rights movement was uh, when it was it was um, uh, nonviolent, which it was very violent. But just who's doing the violence? One is what kind of Angela Davis talks about, right? In in that famous interview. Um, but but this but this idea of also pacifists being gentle and passive, 
<laughs> right? It's nonviolent. Yeah, but, but both, it's scheduled I mean, passive, I mean, and F it's not. FYI, both Lillian and Polly are pacifists. Right. But if when you read their writing, that does not come across, except for right. you know something because they they're providing this counter narrative of counter narrative of strength, and what does what what of uh this this counter narrative of strength in, through pacifism through it, that, that that it's um and it's like what like I mean like said Hughes would write about like meek and mild right like this idea of um that there's some some sort of passivity involved and when you can actually be very very forthright you can be very um you can realize change um and you can be assertive and you can you know um have a, a clearly defined vision and advocate and 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 agitate and organize and educate around those things um so we retell we 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 decenter when we're reading her stuff, um, she's 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 that's radical stuff, man. It really is. Uh, her, I mean, she's got she's she's taking on um, LGBTQ issues and race and and it, ability um, <laughs> in a time where people aren't even you know this is before just to think about how do we organize society. She's talking about these things in if we don't even have, we don't have the ADA. We don't have, right? We don't have any any sort of advocacy. Yeah, for, but when's the ADA? Right? Early nineties. Right, exactly. But American like, Disabilities Act is early nineties, right? Right, and and so and, and so we're 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 thinking broadly, and that's what that's that's what we need to continue to do is, um, why is for instance why is she not? Um, she's working with uh, Dr. King. She's working alongside, right? She's working with SNCC, but this grand narrative moves some folks to the front. Well, see, this is other a... folks to the side, and and then it becomes a more manageable whitewashing. And that's a and that's uh, a whole other activity. That's a whole other issue because two of the things that I've noticed, you know, doing the dive that uh, that I've done, being in my role as director of the center, and and into her, I'm like. Yeah, she's not there. I mean, we get Ella Baker and Diane mm -hmm. Nash, mm -hmm. and we still don't get as much as them as we need to, right? We just got the right. the um, Bayard Rustin, you know, biopic, which I still haven't watched. I need to. I've heard it's really good. Coleman Domingo is lights um, out, man. That's, but it's really good. You know, it's it's these narratives of individuals who were there and yeah. you know impacted everything, and I, I keep going back to King. And King was influenced by multiple people, right? I mean, in 56, right. I've said this multiple times, but when he writes her, she writes him about the bus boycotts. Mm -hmm. And then he writes to her in response, thanking her for her support, thanking her for the money. And then he says, this is 56. It's a pleasure to, I've read you for many years. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. Hopefully we can meet in person. Right. right. That is a powerful statement. And you know, the other thing, too, is I didn't know much about Howard Thurman, but I picked up um, Jesus of the Disinherited, which was published the yes. same year as Killers of the Dream. Yes. And also influenced, you know, King. And I'm like, yeah, this is also somebody else. And Polly talks about him because I think he taught at Howard and so mm -hmm. was was connected with Polly Murray. But these are individuals, you know, that that paved the way for King. He became the center and he put in and he, he didn't want the center on him. I mean, he talks about that, but. 
he became the center and the focal point, and then this narrative that we have coming after, right? You know, and puts him there, right? And pushes others to the side, and and that's, you know, we talked about the, for instance, the the salience of the let's say the Highlander Folk School, for example. That's a really important, you know, Miles Horton and 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 those folks. So that's really really a significant part of the the collective action toward toward freedom towards uh, liberation um and you know one of the things i've always respected about her is you know we'll, we'll go back to that well you're telling me things i can't do well that wasn't sort of in her lexicon which is a speculative act like i can do this like i'm in the I have to look at myself critically first, you know, so she, she, she almost deconstructs her, how she was raised. Right. And I've done a lot of that myself. Well, I'm about to say, um, yeah, I, I never right, thought about, right. <laughs> I never thought about her within the terms of deconstruction with, you know, yeah. evangelical Christianity, but that is exactly, I think you're right. That's exactly what she's doing. You know, that's part of it. And yeah. also and with the culture that she's raised. She talks in. About. So she, 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 what, she walks the walk, right. Um, she's like, you got to do the self work, um, so that you can get in a position to do to uh, engage in meaningful work. You we when when you have been normalized, right? This status quo, the way of things. Um, when your being um, has been almost uh, so normal that it's invisible, you have to take a good long look in the mirror first. Um, which is hard, right? And 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 this is sort of echoed a, not a generation later, but that's what James Baldwin talks about. Like white folks don't even know their own history, right? <laughs> so well, I mean, if we this, if, if we want right? to get to if we want to get to hip hop, um, <laughs> sure. Uh, uh, well, uh, well, a few of Brother Ali's songs. Yep. You yep. know the invention of whiteness and right. I think the travelers and things like that. And and that's you know I I see the work that I do is I try to think about. The, the speculative nature, the when when I say imaginative, it's asking that question. You know, as educators, um, dare we dare we imagine a, a new a new social order? Do we? How do we? And, and how is education? Again, I'm I, I come at this work from an educational perspective, but it certainly is political. You know, in it, it's uh, not partisan, but political. Like what, there's what, always what's a social bell hooks organization is quote about, structure. Is it bell hooks that talks about yeah. um, all teaching is political? All teaching is political, right? Um, Howard Zinn talks about there's no neutral on a moving train, right? In um, in people's history, right? and so and, like, I, and, I, and I like the fact you said it's not partisan. It is just you are you are consciously or unconsciously participating in a system right. and making right. a statement on that system by what you either right. do or do not do. Right. Which, which is, again, how I've run into her work, Lillian Smith's work, is because when you engage the system, you have to understand how these systems and structures work, right? Um, the idea of, you know, I take very seriously, like a thriving democracy depends on a literate public. Uh, okay, well, let's do that. Let's take that seriously. And what does that look like in a media landscape, in a, right, <laughs> in, in the contemporary moment? And how have people done – and this is why I look at people like Smith or um, I'll read um, 
you know, <laughs> really uplifting titles like How Democracies Die. Um, <laughs> which I, I, which I, I just, great. I haven't read but it's, that it's one, a bummer. But, but I read their, I read their follow up, um, crap, Ruled by the Minority, which yeah. I think it was really yeah. good, right? And a lot of things to talk about in there. Right. But but but, um, th but this leads me back to the question that we never really got an answer to. Oh uh oh. <laughs> about you know when, when I gave when I gave the quote about from Lillian to Mr. Hartley about you know when a person stops learning and stops asking questions that's when it's time right. to die when an artist right right and and my question really is you know we think about education as being or learning as yeah. being you know K twelve then if you go to college yes. and then it's like oh. right. That then you're done unless you're doing like professional development stuff, right? Right. So like what is and you and you mentioned too, you know, for a democracy to work, it has to be you have to have a literate, not just literate within being able to read a text, but read literate right, within right. the way the government works, literate within the way these oh. institutions work. Literacy broadly. So right. exactly. But really kind of the question is, and you're kind of touching on it, but you know, why is it important for people to keep learning, to keep seeking, which is what Lillian does? That's right. And how would you suggest people do that? And that's a very broad sure. and sure. hard question. Um, but so, so, but it's one that I take very seriously and, and I spend almost all day, every day trying to think about um, to ask a good question. I, I would say um, authoritarian movements require and this is from what i've read and, and what i've seen you know being alive yeah and, th and this it. comes from everything from paxton and snyder and everybody else paxton snyder why you know uh even even folks who i don't necessarily even um, umberto echo mess with well oh but or fascism start there um but but this idea people that i don't even necessarily uh would i wouldn't necessarily align with like tim miller wrote a, a, a book called why we did it Right. Um, it requires um, an incurious public. <laughs> right. So if functioning democracies require a, a literate public understood broadly. Right. Like not just reading and writing, but how does the government work? Um, critical media analysis, what messages are here? Um, then the inverse is often is often true where you don't question, where you don't where you're not curious, where you're not reading, you're not talking with your neighbors. Um, you don't want to know anything. You want to be told everything, right? Um, and so I think that's why school school. There's a difference between education and schooling, right? And so education is wherever you are. Um, it doesn't it doesn't simply happen in the. It's a very Western conception that that learning only happens in the classroom, right? Um, that's a really archaic. Um, you know, it's a holdover from, you know, the landed gentry in Europe, <laughs> um, because learning is wherever people are. Um, and so um, whether that's it, it, you know, in the cities, like you can learn more at the bodega than you learned in high school. You can learn more and you can learn more at the barbershop than you can in math class, you know, about proportions and it, right. Like it's it's all all life is learning. And so what do you keep, what do you, to, to address that question, um, always, we need to be constantly advocating for our rights, for, for, for when I say our, I'm talking about the, the human right to learn, 
and to push back against anything that would be restricting that. So like book bans or challenges, right? Um, which which remember, be, I mean, Lillian right? talks about book bans in her yeah, writing. Yeah, it's not that, new. Right. Right. It's and, not new. And one thing I'm thinking the, the about The daughters too, of the Confederacy got this. Right. They understood this this concept of oh it's a uh, uh, it's not about that it's it's, uh, it's, about it's unfavorable and to the south. The schools. Well, I mean, I mean, remember Lillian Smith's book *Strange Fruit* was banned supposedly because she used the F word once, right? But that precisely, wasn't really precisely. why. No, you know, it was really about the, those undercurrents of lesbianism. I would say the interracial yep. intimacy, yep. all these other yep. things, yep. Yep. and it reminds me too. You know, you you talk about you talk about this, but but one of the things that keep popping up, Lillian touches on it, but it really popped up in Polly because because I, I finally read when it, like I said I'm teaching it, song in a weary throat, and I knew this. I mean, this is this isn't anything new to me, but I was really fascinated, or really I think inspired me to be the right word, but but caught by how many times she was talking about Jim Crow and Nazism together. That's right. Which. Right. If we're if we're talking Read about, <laughs> well, well, I mean that, that that's yeah. something I've been interested in looking with Lillian about it because she deals with it. Um, the white Christian in his conscience is basically about that. Yes. So I mean that that essay is basically that about that. That was one of that. the first things I read of hers. And, you know, I, I forgot where I was going to go with it, but that gets into this discussion of history too and the importance of being literate in different ways and history right. and learning, right. learning your history right? and learning that, yeah, we, we did preserve democracy and save the world from fascism with the Nazis. But, you know, um, there were people adamantly calling out the connections between Jim Crow and the Holocaust. There were Nazi at the supporters time. At the in time. Congress there were, right. you know, Nazi marches in Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. We, we, mm -hmm. those are things we have to remember. And those things, just like Lillian, doesn't go away. They don't go away either. And and part of it, when we talk about literacy, and I'll just follow up with what with what you said a little bit is we have to have a full reckoning with with our history. So I lived in St. Louis for a long time, and you go to St. Louis City Museum, and you could see an airplane. And what was that airplane? That airplane was a spirit of St. Louis. And who flew that airplane? Charles Lindbergh. No mention, right? Charles, <laughs> there was no mention of any of, it was just like, hey, look, a plane. This guy flew a plane a long way. And like, that's not an understanding of Charles Lindbergh at all. Um, right? It was basically the little plaque that they have. Um, now, do you need to go into everything? No, but you need to like, reckon with it there was no mention of anything except well, he was a pilot right um where whereas he was also uh, a leading member of at least pro, uh, proto-authoritarianism he was very um at least shall we say um sympathetic to the third reich um if if not actively supporting then right <laughs> so um so we need to reckon with that history because then we can begin to understand. So, for example, um, and Rachel Maddow, um, whatever you think, she does a she has a great book called Prequel, which is a, a, a scholarly study on American fascism. And she talks about Henry Ford and how Henry Ford, the, the car guy, 
would put the protocols of the elder of Zion in every new Ford. And so these things are embedded in our the narrative we tell ourselves, like, oh, Henry Ford made the thing. It's like, well, wait, back up, was... back yeah, up real ahead. quick. So, yeah, so ahead. I was gonna see if you were gonna mention Ford. Um, <laughs> I, I, I knew about him putting noted anti-Semite. Well, well, uh, I, I knew about him putting Henry Ford protocols of the elders. Design. I knew about him doing that in the yeah. dear in, in his newspaper. Yep. But he actually put copies of it in yep. every new model Ford. Yep. You know how, like, when you go and get a car, they'll give you like your owner's <laughs> manual. Yeah, he would just plonk it right down. Um, he would plonk it right down. Yes, he did run the. It, it was included free with every Ford. I didn't know that one. Yeah, and right. I, and so, um, and I didn't either. But it's about learning our history. Right, and I still yes. haven't read Mad Al's book. I, I want to. And again, like you said, whatever you think about her, I can't. I can't watch her. I mean, I can't. But her her podcast. I, I think the, the book deals with this. Great yeah, the, her, her podcast Ultra. Which, Which really deals with yeah. the Nazi infiltration, if you want to phrase it yeah. like that, of Congress and how close we mm -hmm. came to actually, you know, mm -hmm. the government being overthrown mm -hmm. in the 40s mm -hmm. is historically grounded and it, it is straight history is what it is. Right? right. And I think it's an important right. kind of it was a very powerful kind of thing. And talking about the ways that these different groups work together, specifically um, Charles Coughlin and the silver shirts yep. and all this other stuff. So yeah, exactly. Charles Coughlin is, is Christian, right? Basically he was Catholic and had a um, radio show, but very massive, much authoritarian and fascism. And massive then, audience. Yeah. And then like groups in LA. So, and then also resistance. So again, I think, I think the, the liter the literacy thing that you mentioned, I'm an English scholar. You know, but mm -hmm. I'm I'm a very firm advocate of interdisciplinary work because everything Without I do question. that I mean, Lillian was against the new yep. critics. I mean, she was against yep. the agrarians because she was like, yeah, you yep. can't you can't separate these things. Yeah. Yeah. But knowing these histories, you know, is important because when you're informed about the histories, then you're informed to be able to determine and figure out and, and see what's happening. See, see what the see what your experience is like in the present. And And you asked earlier. To, to go back to your question, you know, why do we, what's the significance of, of learning? Being curious is one. Learning to ask good questions is another, is another thing. Uh, why is this? How is this? What is this? How does this work? Um, how doesn't it work? Three, when you, when you begin to respond to these questions um, and ask these questions, you begin to discover um, you're not, this is not new. Lillian was doing this a generation, her, you know, of her time, um, and so this is a continuation. And people were doing of, it before her, and people are doing it before her, right? And so this is a, a an ongoing conversation, as you said, uh, you know. But but we have to understand what the terrain currently is by understanding. You know, this is part of the speculative work: is understanding your past to situate your present to build toward a future. How do you, how do you examine? We, you, you learn, you learn the lessons of history. You become learning is interdisciplinary, almost necessarily. So, so what do you do? You keep reading, you keep, um, you keep writing, you build together. Um, and you do that, that introspective work to say where, you know, where are my blind spots right now? Where are my, how do I need to think about things, um, differently um where can i show up 
how can I show up and and who are the people that are working together with me? And this is these are some of the same questions that um Lillian Smith was taking up. Um it's yeah. uh second verse, same as the first, but it's just got a new kind of it's got a new new soundtrack. Well, it, it reminds me, and I kind of want to end on this, getting back to, you know, whose shoulders. I'm reading Patricia Bell Scott's The Firebrand of the First Lady, which deals with the friendship between Polly Murray and Eleanor oh, Roosevelt. That's right. You know, it's it's a really good book. And she opens, I read the introductions last. So I haven't read the introduction, but I read the kind of epigraph she has at the beginning. And it's a letter that Polly wrote to, to Patricia in 1983. And this is what Polly told her. You need to know some of the veterans of the battle whose shoulders you now stand on. And to me, I think that is a very powerful kind of, you know, summing up of of a lot of this is, you know, you need to know the things that came before in order to change the things that you're experiencing Experiencing. to make the better world. That's right. That's right. Um, And that's why there's another great uh, another great book that kind of dovetails or or complements this discussion is uh, Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed. Yeah, that's a very excellent Um, book. It's 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 powerful, and he's a you know he's a poet. It's very well written. It's much more. Due respect to Robert Paxson, uh, how the word is passed is much more accessible, um, because he's Clint, most of the other books talent. we mentioned are a lot more accessible. Yeah, Clint, Clint's more accessible. The how the word is passed is like reading the operating instructions for, uh, well, for fascism, but it's it's very technical. Um, uh, it, but it's it's good. But how the word is passed. And I think what, to... what Quint Smith really deals with, that I think is really good, is he's dealing with sites of memory because that's memory, where he's going exactly. to. Right. And, you know, he, he he went to places that I've been. He went to the Whitney Plantation. I think he went to the EJI. Yep. yep. You know, he talks about, you know, one of the things I didn't know probably about five years ago, I found out is, you know, Wall Street, you know, Wall Street was a slave market. Yep. You know, and yep. the fact that a lot of the banks, you know, that are big today made their money off of the slave trade. Slave, you know, it's yeah. it's it's these types yeah. of things that I think are important when you when you have questions, you know, about the past and you have questions about, well, how do you change things? And then you look and you see and you go like, oh, this is a lot deeper than I kind of thought. And being from the South, you know, that's really something I think that's important too, is that yeah, this isn't a Southern problem. And it's it not it's not, not even a it's not even an American problem. No. It's a it's it has, it's a it broader problem contours and, right and Lillian recognized that too I mean right. she is very for as focused as she is on on the south she is very global right and she is very international within kind of her thinking and I think that that's the right. important thing too is knowing that the context you're in physically and geographically and regionally is part of it but there is a lot more out there that is connected Right. Then you kind of may recognize it first. Right. And one of the things that I think is important to remember is um, Lillian, she I, I will say this. She is she is radical. What do I mean? Um, if if you're going, it needs to grab by the root. <laughs> it needs to grasp by the root. That's literally like if you just, you know, the etymology of the thing. And that's really what she does. But then the other thing we have to remember is it's a system. Right. It, the, the roots have a system. And so it takes more than just one person. Well, you got to pull really the taproot out. You got to pull the taproot out. Exactly. And that's what she, that's what she does so brilliantly. It does so well um, is she gets her hands dirty. She gets into the dirt and pulls as hard as she can 
alongside other people. And so um, that's what we need to do. If there's a lesson from Lillian Smith that we can take is grab by the root and pull hard, but pull together. <laughs> it reminds me of, and I kind of want to end with this. It reminds me of one sure. of my favorite quotes from her. And I think that this is from... If I remember correctly, I think this is from the right way is not the moderate the moderate way. I got to find it. it's either from that or it's from are we still buying a new world with old Confederate bills? But she's talking about cancer and, you know, she was diagnosed with, you know, breast cancer. It was malignant. Yes. And yeah, this is what she says. This is the right way is not the moderate way. So this is 1956. And I think that this is what you're talking about, the roots, because because I always discuss these issues as roots and pulling them out and you have to. Yeah. Dig deep to get them right. And you yep. have to remove the taproot. But she says people behave. Um, I see. Oh, here it is right here. Right here. Well, I'm just going to read both paragraphs. People behave this way in other crises, too, not simply in this one of race relations. There are people who react in a similar way when they are told they have cancer. And she said cancer is the one thing I never wanted. Right. She's like, I didn't know yeah. I, could I could survive. And she survived like yeah. 13 years with it. Yep. They decide to be moderate and do nothing. To rock along and postpone thinking about it. Why? Because they are scared. And because of their fright, they convince themselves that if they do nothing, if they take a few vitamins, maybe the cancer go away. That reminds me of the discussion of the introspective work that she does. Because one of the things that I keep coming back to is her use of reflection and mirror, whether directly or indirectly. And you may not like what you see in the mirror, but what do you choose to do? Do you choose to confront it or do you choose to turn around and just ignore it like she's talking about here but this is what all, what always sticks out with me this quote the tragic fact is neither cancer nor segregation will go away while we close our eyes both are dangerous diseases that have to be handled quickly and skillfully because they spread they metastasize throughout the organism we have seen this happen too often to people who have delayed doing anything about cancer we have also seen sick race relations metastasize throughout our country and indeed throughout the whole earth and when I um one of Ibram Kendi's books, you know, he was diagnosed think, with prostate cancer, and he kind of makes that same metaphor. And I think that from personal experience, but I think it's an apt metaphor too, right? You can eradicate it one place, but it comes back and spreads somewhere else. And if you don't get all the roots, then they'll come back up. It's like English ivy. Mm -hmm. And the thing to remember is you can't, at least for me, I try to remind myself. Um, that the arc, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice. Yeah, but you got to, we're pulling. <laughs> it's a, it's a branch that's going to resist. So we've got to pull it. Right. Um, And it will, and this is kind of Baldwin talks about, you know, it'll be met with, I mean, to talk to teachers, um, a, a, a beautiful essay. He talks about, it'll be met with resistance. So this idea um, that will somehow outthink or out, you know, uh, outread racism, uh, outread segregation. Um, we need that, but then we need we need people. We need um, we need activism and uh, it, it to be active. That's what I mean. So in even just in conversations, the everyday, the what is your the thing that I would encourage if you're if you're still if you're listening, congratulations, uh, <laughs> you're still here, beautiful. Um, the what is the res the the resistance of the quotidian, right? Like the everyday normal con like conversations, like, oh, I don't write, I don't do this. You're asking me to do something I can't do. Well, then what can you do? That's the question to ask. What can you do? What conversations can you have? What can you learn? 
um, how can you engage? Um, and, and, and that, yeah, that, I think that's a good place to end because because that gets back to learning too, right? Because it gets back to learning about yourself and learning what you can do. And I'm wondering, I like the fact you you have that question, what can you? Do? And that's what Lillian asked. She's like, what can you yep. do? And she she, she never <laughs> I marched. did it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, she she never marched. She was not at the march on Washington. She wasn't in any of the sit-ins. She didn't do any of that. She wrote, you know, in support of them. She wrote introductions to pamphlets about sit-ins and jail ins. Mm -hmm. She was a writer and artist. She was, she gave talks, right? She, she viewed herself as an artist and educator. And I think that you summing up, and this is kind of, I think what she did with the camp too, is, you know, what impact can you have where you are? Yeah, you are. And the campers that talked about the impacts on themselves, but then also on their kids and then further down, right? It's a, it's a spreading effect. Sure. So it's, it's not that you have to be, um everything all the time that's right but it's just fine what you can do i, I like that i like that discussion of conversations right it's and that's another thing she talks about too with metaphors it's bridges mm -hmm. it's building bridges between people and overcoming those chasms that have been constructed that's right so i know that's a, i know that's a lot and we kind of meandered a lot of places that's but fun i appreciate you joining me today of course of course thanks for having me um, I always like wide ranging conversations that, you know, they're or organic and hopefully, you know, um, if, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, um, they're, uh, I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter, um, Twitter, well, X or whatever, uh, at MB Dando. I'm on, um, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on Instagram, uh, the Dandalorian, uh, on, on Instagram, um, but uh, yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for having me. It's, it's been a fun, been a fun right. time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag DopeWithLime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.